This is Macro Horizons, episode 255, Stormy January, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Bale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 8th. And as the market continues to fret over the divergence between the establishment and household surveys, we're looking forward to next month's call from spam risk. And we don't mean spiced ham. Although, that's always dicey. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, without question, the most interesting development came in the form of a stronger-than-expected payrolls report. Headline jobs growth beat expectations, and the unemployment rate was unchanged at 3.7%. Now, this doesn't come as any particular surprise per se, given how the labor market has demonstrated a remarkable amount of resilience in light of where we are in the rate cycle. Nonetheless, in light of the rally that we saw during the second half of the fourth quarter, the fact that the market cheapened up into and after the event is certainly consistent with a market that is in something of a holding pattern as we await greater clarity on the monetary policy side. Now, to be fair, 10-year yields at 4% are certainly a far cry from the peak of 5% that we saw last year. So this embedded bullishness that developed in the latter part of the year certainly has persisted into 2024. Now, we expect that over the course of the first quarter, it will become clear that the Fed isn't planning cuts in March, and as a result, we would expect rates to drift higher. Our forecast for the end of the first quarter is to see two-year yields at 435 and 10-year yields in a range of 420 to 440. Now, ultimately, we think that 2024 will be the year of the bull steepening, and we anticipate that 10-year yields in the year at 350. That being said, as has historically been the case, we do think that there's a bias towards higher rates that will develop over the course of the first quarter, a combination of a Fed that's unwilling to bring forward rate cuts and revisiting concerns about supply indigestion as part of the February refunding auction process. One key missing ingredient to a more significant bond rally from here has been an external shock that's translated into a flight to quality and therefore lower rates. While there were moments in which it appeared that lower equities were the path of least resistance in 2023, that obviously did not end up being the case, and the market was even able to make it through the regional banking crisis relatively unscathed. What is striking about the most recent rally in treasuries is that it's a function of the Fed effectively declaring victory on the inflation front. And by that we mean 
the Fed's signaling of 75 basis points worth of rate cuts this year via the December SEP is consistent with monetary policymakers saying that while we might not have done enough at this precise moment, by the end of the year, they will have abandoned terminal and be in rate normalization mode. And for broader context, it certainly isn't wasted on us that we're still in a no-landing-slash-Goldilocks scenario. In conversations with clients, we've shifted from waiting for the next proverbial shoe to drop to a begrudging acceptance that perhaps Powell was able to pull off a soft landing. And what's so unique about that assumption is that combined with the fact that the Fed has told us they're cutting rates this year, we still have break-evens relatively well-contained and 10-year yields at 4%, not 5%. December's universally strong payrolls report reinforced the resilience of the labor market and strengthened our conviction that the Fed is likely to delay cuts beyond Q1 at a minimum. Headline hiring beat by nearly 50,000 jobs. The unemployment rate unexpectedly remained just 0.3 percentage points off the cycle low. And average hourly earnings gained at a firmer pace than expected. And this all brought the odds of a March rate cut to nearly a coin flip versus roughly a two-thirds probability before the payrolls data. There's no question that the takeaway from the payrolls data was that the U.S. labor market remains on strong footing, hiring has been resilient, and the Fed has plenty of flexibility to delay rate cuts, as you point out, Vale, at least into the second quarter. One interesting aspect of the release was how the data was traded. Initially, the market sold off, which follows intuitively, given the upside surprise, but that price action, at least momentarily, was faded as yields drifted back to pre-release levels. Now, that said, yields remained higher on the day throughout the entire process. But our take is that the market was generally biased toward higher rates and a stronger print ahead of the number. We got effectively that, and the subsequent price action was nothing more than squaring of positions as the market starts to contemplate the week ahead. Now, let us not forget that the first week of January had a bearish tone overall long before the payrolls numbers hit. And this came despite a disappointing jolts report that showed the quits rate at just 2.2% and the Fed's FOMC minutes, which while reiterating that they don't anticipate cutting rates anytime soon, did start the conversation about potentially tapering QT. And it's that QT conversation that arguably added a little bit of bullishness or marginally offset some of the bearishness as 2024 got underway. And to zoom the conversation in a bit on the market's pricing of expectations for the Fed over the course of the first quarter, during the final few weeks of 2023, by far our most frequently fielded question was, how is there such a high probability of a March rate cut and even a reasonable probability of a January rate cut, given the fact that the messaging from the Fed has been nearly universal and that while the conversation around rate cuts may be approaching, it's still too soon to actually expect the events themselves. 
And I'll offer the observation that this highlights the other side of data dependence. And what I mean by that is during the hiking cycle, as the Fed ramped up the pace of tightening from 25 basis points to 50 basis points and then multiple 75 basis point hikes, the mantra was consistent in that the cadence of tightening and ultimately appropriate level of terminal was going to be dependent on the incoming economic information. Fast forward to today, and data dependence still applies, but rather than determining the pace of hikes, it's now determining the timing and perhaps magnitude of the first cut. So that doesn't necessarily mean the market doesn't believe the Fed. Rather, it's being dependent on the data to justify the no-cuts-through-March theme that we've heard from across the committee. And we came into the first two weeks of January expecting that the combination of non-farm payrolls and CPI wouldn't define whether or not we got a rate cut in January, but rather would answer the question of whether or not Powell chose to lower policy rates in March. And that's precisely the debate that appears to be unfolding at the moment. We also had upward pressure on global rates as a function of the increase in the year-over-year pace of inflation in Europe which brought into question the assumption that the ECB might actually be the first to cut rates during the cycle. As a result, we anticipate that this initial upward pressure on rates will persist in the week ahead if for no other reason than the building corporate supply calendar combined with the 37 billion 10-year and 21 billion 30-year auctions. Returning briefly to the FOMC minutes and the observation that some participants wanted to begin discussing the parameters that it would take to slow the balance sheet runoff runs counter to our assumption that the Fed was going to let the balance sheet unwind in the background even after they conducted the first rate cut or two. If the Fed is actually signaling sequencing, then by tapering QT, the Fed could, in effect, increase the runway even further to deliver the first rate cut. Said differently, tapering QT is an olive branch to the doves. And the discussion about QT and potentially stopping it earlier than was initially hinted at by Powell last year also emphasizes the factor near the top of the non-economic reasons that we might see a sooner dovish pivot from the Fed than would otherwise be expected. After all, stronger than expected wage growth, the 3.7% unemployment rate, neither of those things point to an economy that's going to need rate cuts in the near term. However, given what we saw in the funding market during the holiday week, the increase in money market rates, SOFR comes to mind, and the early signs that perhaps reserves are making their transition from abundant to ample, That means that the liquidity-draining influence of the balance sheet rundown, what that means for RRP balances, and the overall orderly state of money markets might be evolving a bit more quickly than would otherwise be expected. And so as we ponder the question, what could make the Fed so dovish with a 3.7% unemployment rate, money market issues and bank reserves concerns are definitely at the top of that list. So as we sit and suggest that RRP has become the new NFP, It's certainly not wasted on us that the incoming Fed speak has continued to push back against the market's pricing of a March rate cut. And to a large extent, as you pointed out, Ben, the market has been ignoring this. It's waiting for confirmation via the realized economic data to justify the Fed's reluctance to bring forward rate cuts. And so it's with that backdrop that the inflation data for December is so important. 
It's difficult to envision a print that locks in a rate cut for March, but in the event of a significant disappointment on core CPI for the month of December, it could at least open the door for a repeat combined with weaker payrolls for January and February to justify such a move. And returning to the official communication front, this week we heard several comments from the committee that supported the no cuts for the foreseeable future mantra. One from the FOMC minutes in the phrase that easing financial conditions could present a challenge for the FOMC and its endeavors to restore price stability. And another from Richmond Fed President Barkin, who is a voter this year, in his comment that long-term interest rates have dropped recently, which could stimulate demand in interest-sensitive sectors like housing. And he said that strong demand isn't the solution to above-target inflation, and that's why the potential for additional rate hikes remains on the table. Do you guys think the current futures market pricing of cuts is overly discounting these inflationary risks? I would say that yes. At the moment, the market seems to have moved beyond the potential for a late cycle spike in inflation, even though that was really the story that defined 2023. So it's interesting in the context of Powell's pivot that everyone has taken a potential for rate hikes completely off the table. Now, we don't think that we'll see another rate hike this cycle, so we're certainly sympathetic to that argument. However, and as we've noted in the past, the most reasonable way to expect the Fed to demonstrate its hawkishness from this stage is by delaying rate cuts further and further. And it's well within the potential set of outcomes to see the Fed keep rates unchanged until the second half of the year. Now, that certainly isn't what the futures market has priced in, but we're reminded that in a data-dependent mode, the market will price in the prevailing monetary policy stance for the foreseeable future, and the foreseeable future in such an environment is one, maybe two FOMC meetings. And that's why we expect that simply the passage of time will push rate cuts further and further into the year. Now, the obvious caveat being that's as long as the economic data continues to demonstrate a similar level of resilience that was evident in the December non-farm payrolls print, and the disinflation doesn't flip over to deflation. And there's an aspect of the broader inflationary conversation that we've been having that remains in place, and that is that the journey from 5% core inflation year over year to 3% year over year core inflation was probably the easy part of the Fed's pursuit of 2%. And it's going to take far more demand destruction, certainly not something we saw in the average hourly earnings figures on Friday, to travel that last mile in the inflationary fight back to 2%. It's also worth mentioning the geopolitical developments that we saw to start the new year and the ongoing and worsening tensions in the Red Sea, which has now definitively reintroduced supply chain issues into the macro lexicon, along with a renewed risk of a broader conflict in the Middle East, which are just two additional non-interest rate sensitive inflationary factors to consider in the debate around rate cut timing and the level of treasury yields. Well, Ben, there always seems to be something. So... How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, dieting, except on weekends and special occasions, is going great. I made it. Dieting? Isn't that what athleisure's for? Elastic's fantastic. In the week ahead, there are really just a few factors that will dictate the direction of U.S. rates. 
First, and it goes without saying, that the core CPI data for the month of December will define the agenda. Expectations are for a 0.2% on the core level and a 0.2% on headline as well. Anything that shows an uptick in disinflation will counter the bond bearish price action that has started the year. In addition, we also have the 37 billion 10-year auction on Wednesday, as well as a 21 billion 30-year auction on Thursday. In light of the fact that the February refunding is expected to show increases in auction sizes for both of these benchmarks, it will be very telling to see how these auctions are taken down. At a minimum, we would expect a greater auction concession, either outright or on the curve, in the run-up to the events themselves. Now, obviously, the timing of CPI's release on Thursday morning between Wednesday afternoon's 10-year and Thursday afternoon's 30-year could complicate the setup for both, frankly. Said differently, an investor who is anxious about an upside surprise in inflation would be a less aggressive bidder for the 10-year. On the flip side, once we have the inflation numbers in hand, investors could be incrementally more reluctant to underwrite the long bond. So if nothing else, auction participation will be a key agenda item for the treasury market in the week ahead. In terms of the inflation data, a 0.2 on the core side would imply a moderating but still solid OER and rent print. We'll be watching the core services ex-shelter component to see if some of the recent disinflation has continued or if there's an uptick in this subcomponent which has the highest correlation with nominal wages. In light of the fact that the year-over-year pace of average hourly earnings during December unexpectedly ticked higher to 4.1%, we wouldn't be all that surprised to see core services surprise on the upside. In light of the timing of the data this month versus the FOMC meeting, investors will at least have the benefit of the Fed's take on the combination of jobs and inflation before the pre-meeting moratorium on public appearances, aka the Fed's radio silence period. We make this observation because it's very conceivable that in the event of a strong core services ex-shelter print, that the Fed could nonetheless characterize the overall trajectory of inflation as consistent with the Fed's apparent willingness to declare victory on reestablishing price stability. That being said, even in the event of a downside miss on core inflation, we'd be very surprised if the Fed were to strike a decidedly dovish tone. At this stage in the cycle, it's a function of degrees of hawkishness, not an inflection between hawkish and dovish. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we reflect on the first week of 2024, it's off to an ominous start between earthquakes, plane crashes, subway collisions, and snowstorms. I don't like it here. I want to go back. We've got a machine for that. Where did I put that flux capacitor? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. 
This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.